Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagonia.org. Today is Friday, August 14th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I thought about scheduling a program in time for the rapture and then not showing up. Then I can remotely publish a notice on the front page of my website explaining that I was a no-show because I was raptured and maybe take a week off. I'm joking. Everyone knows that the rapture will be on September 23rd, or maybe September 13th, or in October, depending on which self-proclaimed expert you watch on YouTube. Last week we, um, well, well, this whole rapture thing is absolutely ridiculous. I've seen um, one or two identity Christians mention it. Stay away from it. This Jade Helm, the Pope coming to America, the, the rapture in September, the rapture in October, this is um, all the work of Messianic Jews. If you search, um, search on Google, you'll find that Messianic Jews are behind this whole um, rapture thing, which is being rumored. I wish it would be a rapture. Then I could sit around and explain to the Judeo-Christians what happened to the niggers and Jews. But I'm afraid it's not going to be that easy when we finally get rid of them. Jade Helm, the Pope coming to America. Who cares? The Pope's just another um, head of another Jewish corporation, basically. They come to America all the time from Europe. What's the big deal? Let the, um, let the heathens make a big fuss about it. Let the white nationalists, pagans, and atheists who are really just um, whores to the Jews anyway, let them worry about Jade Helm and, and um, all this other crap going around. Let the Judeo-Christians worry about the rapture, thinking they're going to be taken up to Jesus before the Antichrist gets here, and in reality, they've been getting screwed in the butt by the Antichrist for a hundred years and they're too damn stupid to know it. Let them worry about that stuff. Identity Christians shouldn't have anything to do with any of that. Not one bit. Last week we covered the first 16 verses of Galatians chapter 3. And this week we will only cover the final 13 verses of that chapter. Yahweh willing we will not be raptured before we can finish Paul's epistles. The epistles of Paul, Galatians, part four, subtitled, Heirs of the Covenant. The typical denominational Christian understanding of Galatians 3.16 is not only absolutely contrary to the original intent of its author, Paul of Tarsus, but it is It is also absolutely contrary to all of the promises of Scripture. 
it goes so far as to endeavor to make void all of the promises of Scripture which we see that Yahweh had made to Abraham and to the children of Israel exclusively, in spite of Paul's actual words confirming those promises, but especially in spite of the words of Yahweh God himself. It is an outright theft and a grave deception to imagine that the seed of Galatians 3.16 is the single individual, Jesus Christ. Those who insist on, on saying this must not be able to understand just how or why Yahweh would keep his promises to a particular race. They cannot even properly identify that race, and therefore they seek to twist the word of God. Here we shall see that in the balance of Paul's statements in his chapter, it is clear that Yahshua Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and not its lone recipient or beneficiary, if you will. Since Paul also attests that he intended beneficiaries of the promises to Abraham are a plural entity and not a singular individual. And Paul himself connects these promises to Abraham to the promises of a new covenant. In spite of the traditional explanations of the denominational sects, it is quite clear that here in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is explaining that the promises of Yahweh God fulfilled in Christ are indeed going to be kept according to what Yahweh had already promised to Abraham, as it is recorded in the book of Genesis, which ensured Abraham that his seed would become many nations and as the stars of heaven, and that they would inherit the world as well as inheriting his blessing. This is what Abraham believed. So this belief alone is the faith of Abraham. Paul also said in Galatians 3.15 that the covenant could not be amended or added to. There is no man capable of adding to or amending the promises of God. There is no changing the nature or definition of Abraham's seed, and there is no adding to the promises of a new covenant as they are found in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Paul once again reinforces that statement in Galatians 3.17, where earlier in Galatians chapter 3, Paul had written that just as Abraham had trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then you know that they, from faith, they are sons of Abraham. He is making a rather direct statement that those who are from other faith, which Abraham had, they are the sons of Abraham. Because the faith of which Paul speaks can only be what Abraham himself had believed, and certainly not what anyone else may believe. Abraham wouldn't have cared less about what anyone else may have believed. Abraham's faith was his belief when the word of God spoke it to him.
that his offspring would indeed become many nations, that nations and kings would come from the seed in his loins, and that it was that seed which would ultimately inherit the earth. Paul then said here in Galatians chapter 3 at verse 8, and the writing having foreseen that from faith Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, announced to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So those from faith are blessed along with the believing Abraham. Those from faith are the result of what Abraham had believed over 2,000 years before Paul was writing. And therefore, they can only be the nations of the promises made to Abraham. As we had seen, that Paul also explained that same thing in a very different manner in Romans chapter 4. And it is those very nations who are blessed in the blessing to Abraham, which is how Paul himself is interpreting the promises made to Abraham, where he refers to those nations which the writing had foreseen. Therefore, in order to understand who the proper heirs of the promises to Abraham are, we must understand that they are also the heirs of the new covenant promises to Israel. And that is what Paul is saying in Galatians 3.16. Paul is explaining that one cannot be an heir merely by keeping the laws of God or by adhering to the works of the law. One can only be an heir if one is of the faith which Abraham had, which describes what Abraham had believed, as Paul states, that faith is according to the promises. Paul had likewise said in Romans chapter 15, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. So after Paul had said to the Galatians, that brethren, in Galatians 3.15, I speak as befits a man, even a validated covenant of man, no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. Paul then explained that now to Abraham the promises had been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed, which narrows the scope of the promises to Abraham in the same way that the book of Genesis narrows that scope, to include only one of the families that had descended from Abraham out of several that Paul means seed as a collective group and not an individual is clear where he later says in this chapter, at the end of Galatians chapter 3, that there are heirs of this promise and not merely a single heir. Paul cannot say anything which is contrary to the way the promises to Abraham are passed down in Genesis. Rather, he is only explaining how those promises were passed down in Genesis. So we see in Genesis chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22 that Abraham 
had received these promises, which told him that his seed would be innumerable, that they would become many nations, and that they would be blessed and would inherit the earth. And then this promise was later passed down to Isaac and then to Jacob, where it was repeated again at Genesis 28:14, When the promises were passed down to Isaac with the statement, In Isaac shall thy name be called. The children of Ishmael and those which Abraham would later have with Keturah were eliminated from any hopes of inheriting them. Then, when Esau forfeited his birthright and the promises were instead passed down to Jacob, his children also lost any hope of this inheritance. That is the meaning. of Galatians 3.16. And as one can see Paul explain, in Romans chapter 9, his words here are necessary because many of the people in Jerusalem who sought their righteousness in the law were actually descended from Esau and not from Jacob. And they thought that they could attain the promises by keeping the law. So we shall repeat verse 16 with this understanding. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring, which are the nations and kings and seed of the stars of heaven, which he was promised. It does not say, and to your offsprings, as of many, meaning to Ishmael, or the sons of Keturah, or the sons of Esau, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed, which is in reference to the children of Israel alone. So Paul is explaining that the exclusivity of the promises of Yahweh God persists in the new covenant, even among the offspring of Abraham. Further, in order to understand which nations descended from Abraham, we are therefore obligated to follow Paul's epistles and not only study what Paul had said, but have the faith to examine it along with the Old Testament prophecies and histories and to compare it to ancient history in order to find out the truth as to what Paul had said because he was the apostle to the very nations who are the heirs of these promises and this covenant. Doing that, we shall indeed learn that it is proven in ancient history that Paul did exactly as his commission professed by bringing the gospel of God to the nations of dispersed Israel, to those nations which were indeed the seed of Abraham and the heirs of the covenant. Paul, having been appointed as the apostle to those nations with the hope of the twelve tribes, therefore he should have known to which nations it was that he was commissioned to bring the news of those promises.
that news being the gospel itself. Therefore, there was no epistle of Paul to the Arabians. And among the Arabians of Paul's time, we had the Midianites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ishmaelites, and other tribes who were descended in part from Abraham. Neither was there an epistle of Paul to the Edomites. A greater number of whom converted to Judaism in Judea, but whom Paul had identified as vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. Neither were there any epistles of Paul to the Syrians, Persians, or any of the Japheti tribes, such as those of the Ionians or the Thracians, although he had often passed through their lands on his journeys. Neither were there any epistles of Paul to the Egyptians, Ethiopians, or any of the other peoples in Africa. There were only epistles of Paul to certain of the places in Europe where tribes which were descended from the dispersed Israelites of antiquity had dwelt. And these Galatians were among those tribes. The content of those epistles reveals on many occasions that Paul was writing to Israelites, which is absolutely clear in these upcoming passages of this epistle to the Galatians. After explaining the narrow scope of the promises to Abraham in verse 16, Paul goes on to reinforce what he intended, and he writes in verse 17, as we have it. Now this I say, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, the law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate by which the promise is left idle. Some manuscripts have here validated beforehand by Yahweh in Christ, which may also be read validated beforehand by Yahweh to the anointed. The covenant to which Paul refers, however, is the initial covenant which Yahweh made with Abraham. After the manner in which it was customary for men to make covenants at that time, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 15. This is what Paul talks about where he says the covenant validated before the law was given 430 years later. And in Genesis chapter 15, from verse 9, it says, And he said to him, meaning Yahweh said to Abraham, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away, or I should say Abram. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And then we read in verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp 
that passed between those pieces. Yahweh passed between the carcasses, as a man of that time would do, validating the covenant and staking his very life upon it, which was the tradition of man at the time. In the ancient Mary letters that have been unearthed by archaeologists, and which are believed to date around the time that Israel went down to Egypt in the 18th century BC, there is a description of a covenant which was apparently made in much the same manner. There, the phrase, kill an ass, indicated the making of a treaty of peace between two parties. They would divide the carcass, the ass, and pass between the pieces. Notice that Paul said that the covenant was validated with Abraham, and that the law arrived 430 years after that, which is a reference to the giving of the Levitical law at Mount Sinai. This is the way Paul interpreted the book of Genesis. It's very important. Here it is apparent that Paul had interpreted the 400 years of Genesis 15, verse 13, and the 430 years of Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, to have begun with the promise of Abraham, which Yahweh had made to him in Genesis chapter 15, which was after Abraham had arrived in the land of Canaan. It is a common misunderstanding that the children of Israel were actually in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Rather, in truth, their bondage lasted for not longer than a period of about 200 years. Once this is properly ascertained, it becomes clear just how often the denominational commentators, the so-called Bible experts, and the Sunday pastors repeat one another's errors, never studying the original data for themselves. The 200-year figure of Israel's bondage is arrived at in two different ways. First, we may take Paul's 430 years and deduct the time until Isaac was born. Then we may further deduct the time until Jacob was born and then the age he was by the time that he had arrived in Egypt. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born and had already been in the land of Canaan for 10 years. Genesis chapter 16. So the 430 years began when Abraham was about 76 years old. Isaac was born 14 years after Ishmael, when Abraham was about 100 years old. This accounts for about 24 years. Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob was born, which makes our total figure about 84 years, kicking off the first 84 years on Paul's 430-year chronology. Jacob was 130 years old when he went to Egypt with his family. Genesis 47, chapter 47, verse 9, which brings us to 214 years. Jacob then lived for another 
17 years during which Israel was not yet in bondage. Genesis chapter 47, verse 28. So over half, or about 231 years of the total of 430 years is passed by the time when Jacob had died and Israel was put in bondage by the Egyptians sometime following Jacob's death. Now, that proves that the bondage is less than 199 years. The second way to arrive at the conclusion that Israel spent no longer than 200 years in bondage in Egypt is by examining the genealogies provided in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 6, we learn that Levi had a son named Kohath. And Kohath, in turn, had a son named Amran. And Amran was the father of Moses and Aaron. Kohath was already born when Levi went to Egypt with his father. He was probably a very young man, but he was already born. Genesis chapter 46, verse 11. By the time Moses was born, Israel was already in captivity. The birth of Moses must have been nearly 120 years after Jacob had gone down to Egypt, along with Levi and Kohath. And according to the Bible, Moses and Aaron were in only the second generation of Levites born in Egypt. It is not clear whether the captivity had already begun when their father was born, Amran. But the Israelites were being severely oppressed by the time that Moses was born. Moses had later fled Egypt when he was about age 40. And he returned when he was about the age of 80. And we learn that in Exodus chapter 7. Leading the children of Israel out of Egypt a short time later. Since after 40 years in the desert, Moses died at the age of 120. Which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 34. A time period which is also verified in the number of years recorded for Aaron when he died as it is recorded in Numbers chapter 33. Aaron was 123 years old, and Aaron was, examining the scripture, only about three years older than Moses. So it appears that the children of Israel were not being forced to expose their infants when Aaron was born, but three years later, when Moses was born, they were being forced to expose their infants. That's circumstantial. If the life of Moses consumed 80 years of the 200-year period during much of which Israel was apparently in bondage, these last 200 years of Paul's 430, that leaves 120 years from the time when Kohath, Moses' grandfather, went down to Egypt with his father Levi, 120 years from that time to the birth of Amran, Moses' father, and then to the birth of Moses. Now, that is a long time to engender only two generations of children, 120 years. 
But both Kohat and Amran had also lived very long lives and may well have had children as late as their own great-grandfather Isaac had. And Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob was born. Amran, according to Exodus chapter 6, Amran lived until he was 137 years old. And, evidently, he did not live to see the Exodus. So he must have been greater than, because he didn't live 80 more years from the birth of Moses, he died before the Exodus. He must have been greater than 57 years old when Moses was born. He had to be at least 57 years older than his son Moses. So if Kohath and Amran each had their sons at an age greater than 60, it is very possibly as many as 120 years for Israel to be in Egypt by the time Moses was born. But not all of that 120 years was in captivity. The captivity began sometime after Jacob died. And the exodus happened 80 years later, 80 years after Moses was born. As for Moses, being of only the second generation, of the children of Israel born in Egypt and living long enough to come out of Egypt in the Exodus. We see further corroboration in the genealogy which is given for the tribe of Judah. The same situation exists, the same exact situation, where Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, is also of the second generation born in Egypt. And he also lived to participate in the Exodus. He was probably around the same age as Moses himself and born around the same time. The scriptures supporting that, Numbers, Chapter 1, verse 7, Ruth 4.19, and 1 Chronicles, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'm sure there are others. Amminadab was the grandson of Hezron, and Hezron was born in the land of Canaan and had accompanied his father, Pharez, when he went down to Egypt with Jacob, Genesis 46.12. So this second manner of deducing the figure of 200 years in captivity fully corroborates the first manner, which is deduced from Paul's statement here in Galatians. The captivity itself was not 400 years, as most commentators and Sunday pastors imagine, and as I see repeated rather consistently in Christian literature. Rather, with all certainty, the captivity was only as long as 200 years. 
and probably not that long. It may have been as short as 100 years or 90 years or starting sometime before the birth of Moses. We don't know. Exodus doesn't tell us. This in itself proves whenever this error is repeated, that most commentators simply take one another's statements for granted. Somebody sees something in a commentary, thinks it's true, and they run with it. Or they read the statements concerning the chronology in Numbers and Genesis and don't really consider the implications of all of those statements. As to the population of Israelites on the plains of Moab, of which an account was first taken about 240 years after Jacob went down to Egypt, 40 years being the 200 years in, age, in Egypt and then 40 years in the desert, and then the children of Israel are numbered on the plains of Moab, right? And they're numbered twice. As to the population of the Israelites on the plains of Moab, 240 years after Jacob went down to Egypt, and where there are over 600,000 men of fighting age, this is very possible. If you start with 30 childbearing couples, if each childbearing couple has seven children during their reproductive cycle, regardless of when they start having children, in the ninth generation, which could be as little as 200 years, there will be over 675,000 couples ready to bear over 4.7 million children. Do the math. Those numbers are quite plausible and more than sufficient for the generation which wandered out of the desert of Sinai. And when I publish this presentation at Christaginian.org this evening, at the bottom of the page, where I usually publish a, um, a word processing copy of my notes, which are posted on a website, I will also publish a little spreadsheet which illustrates the numbers. Moses himself may have been of the second generation born in Egypt, but being 80 years old at the Exodus, at a time when Yahweh said that he had planned on multiplying the children of Israel, and since there were several generations already born when Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, and still more generations were born in the desert of Sinai, then the numbers are highly plausible. So it's 430 years, according to Paul of Tarsus, from the, the validation of the covenant with Abraham, which must be the Genesis chapter 15 covenant, because that was 
Yahweh passing through the pieces of the animals was a validation of a covenant. From there, it is 430 years to the giving of the law at Sinai. And from that we see that the captivity in Israel was only about 200 years. And that's, the, that's more than the maximum number. The real number of years in captivity were probably far less. And Paul says in Galatians 3.18, For if from law the inheritance is no longer from promise, but... To Abraham, through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. In all of the promises which Yahweh had made to Abraham concerning his seed, nothing was conditional on the part of Abraham. Nothing at all was required of Abraham until after Yahweh had already made many promises to him in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 15, and then not until Genesis chapter 17 we see anything at all required of Abraham, where it is seen that he and his sons were circumcised as a sign of the covenant. Later, circumcision was mandated for Israel as a part of the law, and after a lapse during the sojourn in the desert, it was resumed in Joshua chapter 5. But the only conditions of the promises of Genesis chapters 12 and 15 were on the part of Yahweh. The giving of the law at Sinai and the vow of the people to keep it were for reasons that were in addition to the promises to Abraham, as Paul shall explain here. If the law of Yahweh God given to Israel at Sinai over 400 years later, does not invalidate the promises to Abraham which were passed down through Jacob, then neither does the church which came along over 2,500 years later invalidate those promises. Paul again defined the scope of the promises in Romans chapter 4 written several years after this epistle to the Galatians, where he had written from verse 13, Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society, or the world, if you will, but through righteousness of faith. For if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, all of the seed, if you will. Not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing, because they came into existence through Abraham's loins, they didn't exist when the promise was made. Who, contrary to expectation, 
because he didn't believe he was going to have seed, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. The children of Abraham can't be anything but Abraham's physical offspring. The promises to Abraham, which are fulfilled in Christ, are to those same offspring. As Paul said here, the promise is to be certain to all the offspring. The nations of the blessing to Abraham are also, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. Where Paul says that the covenant with Abraham was validated beforehand by Yahweh, and that the law does not invalidate it. It is evident that the reasons for the giving of the law were supplemental to the promises to Abraham. Of course, this is also evident reading the Old Testament, because if the children of Israel were ever destroyed, whether it was deserving or not, then the promises to Abraham would become meaningless. We could chop off the first 16 chapters of Genesis and throw them in the garbage because they would be trash. Yet, the children of Israel, in spite of all their sin, had mercy. And salvation in Christ. So the promises to Abraham and Jacob would be kept by Yahweh their God. And we don't chop those chapters off, and trash them. We keep them, because God is true. The Christian promises do not begin with Christ. They began with Abraham, as we are told in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Luke and elsewhere, that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If one is not a part of the promises made to Abraham and passed down through Jacob, according to the declaration, thus his offspring will be, then one has no part in the promises in Christ. So Paul asks, then why the law? And he answers, it had been imposed on account of the transgression. And we'll stop right here in the middle of verse 19. The Codex Beze has an odd reading here. Then why the law? It was placed on account of the traditions, which is sort of strange and virtually meaningless. There are no traditions before the law was given. The third sentence, not no traditions relating to the law or anyway. The 3rd century papyrus, P46, which is one of the oldest papyri, esteemed to date from around 200 AD, has this entire clause. Then why the law? It had been imposed on account of the transgressions. P46 only has, then why the law, of those practices. This would indicate that the rituals of the law were the subject of Paul's reference. The text here follows 
the ancient great uncles, which date from the 4th and 5th centuries, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, and other 5th and 6th century codices. And verse 19 continues, until the offspring would come, to whom or to which he had promised himself, the precise dating of the coming of the Messiah is found in prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. The final clause may have been rendered merely to whom he had promised. However, we instead chose to interpret the medium voice verb following its basic grammatical signification, where the initiator and the subject of the action, the initiator and the receiver, are one and the same, thereby illustrating the meaning of many prophecies of Scripture concerning the nature of the Messiah. One example is where the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 43, but now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. And he goes on in verse 10 to state, Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he, I am thy redeemer. And he that created thee, I am he before me, there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. Jesus was God. As Thomas the Apostle says in the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. And if there was no God formed before Yahweh, neither shall there be after me then Yahshua Christ is Yahweh, or the Bible is a lie, and we trash it because it lies to us. In truth, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God. I and my Father are one, not two, not three, not six. And therefore it says in Isaiah 43, in verse 11, I, even I am Yahweh, and besides me, Jesus saves, and besides me there is no Savior. To finish Galatians 3.19, speaking about the offspring that would come to whom he had made this promise, having been arranged by messengers, in a mediator's hand. And the mediator is not of one, but Yahweh is one. The Greek word henos is literally of one. But used with a word such as mediator, Thayer adds that it may have been read idiomatically of one party. With that understanding, we may perceive Paul to be stating, but Yahweh is one party. In, conclu in his conclusion to verse 20, 
With that understanding, we may perceive Paul to be stating, but Yahweh is one party. However, it is also evident in Scripture, as we've just demonstrated from Isaiah, that Yahshua Christ, Yahweh incarnate, is the mediator of the covenant. But he being God, had also made the promises. Therefore, contrary to the claims of the denominational sects, he is certainly not the recipient of the promises. This verse alone contradicts them all. The seed of Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, the seed of Galatians 3.16 cannot be Christ. He made the promises. He is the mediator. And a mediator is not of one party, and Yahweh is one. So Christ, being the mediator, there must still be another party, which is Abraham and his collective seed, proving again our interpretation of Galatians 3.16, that it's the only legitimate interpretation. In Hebrews chapter 8, Paul refers to the new covenant, promised to the children of Israel, and he describes Christ as mediator of that covenant where he says, but now has he obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises? For if that first covenant has been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. The Old Covenant was based upon the promises of Israel to keep the law. Exodus chapter 19, 20, 21. So that they would have a tutor unto Christ, as Paul explains here. That's the big picture. They didn't see it in time. But the New Covenant is based upon better promises. The Old Covenant, based upon Israel's promises to keep the law, failed because Israel couldn't keep the law. The New Covenant, as Paul says in Hebrews, is based upon better promises, which are the original promises to Abraham. Those promises were always superior to the old covenant, and they preceded it. Then, in Hebrews chapter 9, Paul affirms this once again, and he says from verse 15, and for this cause, he is the mediator, not the recipient. He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. However, 
only the children of Israel. The seed of Abraham through Jacob are they which are called. In Isaiah chapter 51, we read an appeal by Yahweh made to the children of Israel. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh. Look under the rock whence ye are hewn, and the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. The purpose of the Messiah is explained further in Isaiah chapter 49. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall seen arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, speaking to Israel. Yahweh is faithful because Christ is the mediator. And in Christ the mediator, he has kept the promises to Abraham and to his seed. That's what matters. And that transcends the old covenant. Paul is explaining to the Galatians the significance of the Messiah and the scope of these promises made in the Old Testament. He is not adding anything to it, and he is not taking anything away from it. And he says in verse 21, Therefore, is the law in opposition to the promises of Yahweh? Certainly not. If a law had been given having the ability to produce life, indeed, justification would have been from a law. As it says in Psalm, 143, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. And David had written that concerning himself, regardless of his love for and his desire to keep the law. Likewise, even of Abraham, Paul had written that if Abraham were justified by works, he has reason to glory, but not before God. Romans chapter 4. Abraham was deemed righteous by Yahweh God because Abraham believed the word of God. His reward was the immutable promises which Yahweh made concerning his seed, which out of all of his sons, only the children of Jacob, Israel, were accounted as his seed. In Psalm 105, We read of the prominent nature of the promises to Abraham, which were given before the law. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord our God. He is 
Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, not the covenant at Sinai. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham, that wasn't the covenant at Sinai, and his oath unto Isaac, And he confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law in Genesis 28, perhaps 350 years before Sinai, or 320, guessing. And confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel. For an everlasting covenant. That's the law which supersedes the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The psalm affirms that the things which Yahweh had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are everlasting, permanent promises. The Levitical and kingdom laws given at Sinai, even though the kingdom laws are indeed a reflection of Yahweh's perfect law, were not meant to be permanent. And they were not in opposition to these permanent, everlasting promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, they were supplementary to them, as Paul shall explain. Galatians 3.22 But the writing has enclosed all under fault in order that the promise from the faith of Yahshua Christ would be given to those who are believing. The Old Covenant was therefore to teach Israel what sin was, to teach Israel the consequences of sin, and to show Israel the mercy of God in spite of sin. All of Israel had sinned, and only Israel had been and closed in sin, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, that sin, even though it was in the world before the law, sin is not imputed where there is no law. Therefore, if all here, all, the writing has enclosed all under sin, if all here means everybody in the world, then Paul of Tarsus is a liar. And he's a liar because the scripture says of Yahweh in the Psalm 147 that he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He has not done so with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. If all, in verse 22 here, means all men, everybody in the world, Paul of Tarsus is a liar. But if by saying all here, Paul only means to refer to all of the seed of Abraham through Jacob, who are the subject of this entire discourse, then Paul is telling the truth, and the scripture is not ever broken. Therefore, 
if all here only means all of Israel that was under the law, because only Israel was under the law. Therefore, where in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul once again refers to the mediator of the covenant, and he mentions all men, Paul can only, once again, be meaning to reference all of the men of Israel, and nobody else, where he says, this is good and acceptable before Yahweh our Savior, who desires all men to be preserved and to come into full knowledge of the truth. For Yahweh is one and one mediator of Yahweh and men, a man, Yahshua Christ, who gave himself up for a ransom for all, the proof in proper times. Yet being the mediator of a new covenant promised only to the children of Israel, Yahshua Christ is a mediator only to all men of the children of Israel. That's called context. Yahweh actually discarded others of the Genesis 10 nations so that he would save Israel. And we read in Isaiah, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, and Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. So all men cannot mean all of everybody. It can only mean all of Israel. For that reason and others, Paul never wrote epistles. He never wrote any epistles to the people of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba. They obviously weren't amongst the Gentiles, to which Paul was ambassador of the Gentiles. All does not mean all the way the Judeo-Christians interpret it, or the Roman Catholics. Here, rather than the faith of Abraham, Paul mentions the faith of Yahshua Christ. But what is the faith of Yahshua Christ? From Daniel chapter 9, where Yahweh God answers the prayers of the prophet, we read this. Seventy weeks are determined upon my people and upon my holy city to finish the transgression. The law was our schoolmaster unto Christ. And to make an end of sins. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, the promises to Abraham. And to seal up. the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That seed back there in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Galatians 3.16. It's also the seed of the woman. So we see that the promise of the Messiah was to make reconciliation with Israel for the iniquity of the people. Then we read further, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. 
but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So the Romans, who were the people of Messiah, the prince, as Paul's epistle to the Romans proves, would destroy Jerusalem and the temple after the cutting off of the Messiah. Then a little further we read, And he, meaning the Messiah, shall confirm the covenant, the covenant with Abraham, with many for one week, the promises of the new covenant related to those initial promises made in the revocable covenant with Abraham, for which we can cite Luke chapter 1, verse 72. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, which are the rituals of the temple in Jerusalem. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate, the Edomites, when the people of Messiah the Prince came and destroyed the city, which is still the subject of the prophecy at this point. So in accord, with the Messianic prophecy of Daniel, we read in Isaiah, who preceded Daniel by about 200 years, from Isaiah chapter 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Therefore, Paul says that the writing has enclosed all under fault, speaking of all of the children of Israel, just as Isaiah was speaking of all of the children of Israel, where he says that he was wounded for our transgression. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's no other all except the children of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 46, from verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, and even to your old age I am he, and even to whores' heads, whores' hairs, will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Having declared the end, 
from the beginning, we see that the new covenant and the Messiah are for the salvation of one race and one race only, the seed of Abraham through Jacob, Israel. The word Genesis means beginning. Then we see the purpose of the Messiah as attested by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who from Luke chapter 1, verse 67, we see, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and what he says is absolutely agreeable with the description of the Messiah promised in Daniel and Isaiah. Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. And the next part is significant here. And to remember his holy covenant, not the, old, not the Old Testament at Sinai, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham. This is what Paul is teaching here. For all men, meaning only all of the people of the children of Israel, no other men fit into the context of any of these statements or promises of God. As Paul said in Romans chapter 4, Yahweh God can call those things which be not as though they were. Call things not existing as if they existed. As we see in the promises to Abraham that many nations did come from his seed. However, we must also consider that God also calls things which are as though they shall not be. As we read in Obadiah 16, where the word of Yahweh says that all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Just because there are men, that you want to call them men, of other nations and races here today, that does not mean that they can be accounted among all men in reference to the promises which Yahweh made to Israel alone. The heathens will evidently not be here one tomorrow day forthcoming. So how could they be accounted as men in the promises of God? They cannot. They do not exist because they shall not exist. God calls things which be as though they were, things which be not as though they were, and God calls things which are 
as though they shall not be. Out of all of Abraham's seed, it was the gospel of Yahshua Christ, which were to separate the chosen from those not chosen, the children of Israel from the children of Abraham's other sons, as Christ said to those who opposed him, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, but you believe me not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The faith of Christ is the belief that Christ came to do what the prophets had written of him, according to the scripture. That's the faith of Christ. Those things which he was to do pertain only to the children of Israel. That's the faith of Christ. Therefore, those who are believing are those of the children of Abraham who hear his voice and who follow him, who are the sheep of Yahshua Christ. Paul's words in verse 23 continue to elucidate the validity of the interpretation. But before the faith was to come, we had been guarded under law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. Only the children of Israel were ever guarded under the law. And therefore, only the children of Israel were enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. And Paul mentions that enclosure in another context in his epistle to the Colossians. And we will wait to discuss it there. No one from any other race or nation was ever guarded under the law, including those of Abraham's other sons, whom are also excluded from the faith destined to be revealed, which was the faith of Christ, and not merely some vague belief in a poorly defined Jesus. This Jesus himself said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were the ones guarded under the law and closed to the faith destined to be revealed, even though they were put off in punishment. They heard his voice, and they followed him. For anyone else to believe in Jesus is vanity, because they shall not penetrate the enclosure Paul speaks of here, which is created by the word of God. And Paul says, So the law has been our tutor for Christ, in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. In this manner, earlier in this chapter, Paul had quoted the prophet Habakkuk, where he had written concerning the children of Israel, saying that the just shall live by faith. And here we see that the law was supplemental to the promises to Abraham, which are permanent promises given apart from the law. In fact, 
The water itself foresaw in various ways that the children of Israel would break the old covenant. I'll only give one example. One example is in the curses of disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where we read, Yahweh shall bring thee, and thy king, which thou, not Yahweh, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, and there thou shalt serve other gods, wood and stone. They will be pagans. Some of them are still being punished in that manner. But earlier, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it was already foreseen that Israel would, be, would indeed be disobedient in this manner, where it says, When thou art come unto the land which Yahweh thy God has given thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me. Israel shall say, I will set a king over me. Then in the curses of disobedience, Yahweh says, And thy king which thou shalt set over thee. Back to Deuteronomy 17. Thou shalt, I'm sorry, verse 14. When thou art come into the land which Yahweh thy God has given thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Which we see in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel finally did, being disobedient. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. The children of Israel sin wanting a king, so Yahweh is going to pick their king. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Thou making a law which was contingent upon the disobedience of Israel, Yahweh was prophesying their disobedience and their resulting punishment. But that the law was our tutor for Christ, we again see that those that are facing Christ are those who had once been under the law, and out of all the world's peoples, as well as all of the children of Abraham. That can only apply to the children of the 12 tribes of Israel. Nowhere does Paul talk about any faith for anyone else. If only they were ever under the law, then only they from the faith may be deemed righteous in Christ. As it says in Isaiah chapter 45, in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. Yet for an Edomite to be under the law is folly, as today's Jews claim, since the law was only given to Israel, and they are not Israel. They can't be saved by Christ, and they won't be saved by Moses. But the faith having come, verse 25, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Christ Yahshua. And we cannot separate verse 26 from verse 25 and verse 24. 
and the faith in Christ Yahshua is that he would reconcile the children of Israel to Yahweh, as we have read from both Daniel and Isaiah. There is no faith in Christ outside of this faith in Christ, that in Christ the children of Israel are to be reconciled to God. That is because there are no Old Testament promises for anyone of any other race. Yahweh told us the end at the beginning. If you don't find niggers in Genesis, you won't find niggers in a revelation. The faith having come, the children of Israel would no longer be condemned by the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband, Israel married to Yahweh, is bound by law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged in the law of the husband, Yahweh dying on the cross of Christ. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is freed from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. The letter of the law being satisfied, Israel can have reconciliation to God. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin which were through the law operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit. We are reconciled to Yahweh God in the spirit, and not oldness of letter. The Romans were the children of the lost tribes of Israel, as well as the Galatians. For as many of you have been immersed in Christ, Christ you have been clothed in. We may have been done better to write the last clause in Christ you have been clothed but the phrase clothed in comes from a single Greek word and wherever that happens we shirk we, we detest splitting such phrases we probably have somewhere but we try to avoid it as we have previously seen in this presentation of Galatians, being immersed in Christ means being immersed in his death, in the purpose of his having died on behalf of the children of Israel. As Paul had written in Romans chapter 6, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And he says here, there is not one Judean or Greek. There is not one bondman or freeman. There is not one male and female, for you are all one in Christ Yahshua. And Paul is not saying that there should be no more slaves. The word for bondman here, doulos, 
Strong's number 1401, is the same Greek word which was translated as servants in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where in an epistle which was written several years after this epistle to the Galatians was written, Paul wrote, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. He didn't say they would no longer be slaves. He's encouraging them to be trustworthy slaves since they're slaves. Rather, Paul is saying that among Christians, slaves should get equal love and respect with free men. As he later wrote in the epistle to Philemon, where he wrote to him of the slave Onesimus, that he, being a Christian, should be treated not now as a doulus, as a servant, as a slave, it's the same word, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more unto you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The word for servant in that passage is also doulus each time it appears. Paul also continued to make distinctions concerning sex, where after this epistle was written, several years after, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Therefore, Paul is not saying here that there will be no more distinction between the sexes. We're still going to have sexes. We're still going to have slaves. We're still going to have free men. Therefore, it is not as if there could no longer be Judeans or Greeks. But as Paul had said in Galatians chapter 2, now from those reputed to be something, whatsoever they were then makes not one difference to me. Yahweh does not receive a man's stature. Therefore, to me, those of repute are conferred nothing. And likewise, Paul later wrote in Romans chapter 3, what then? Are we better talking about Judeans? Not at all, for we previously accused both Judeans and Greeks with being at fault, just as it is written, that there is none righteous, not even one. Paul's words there, and here in Galatians, have nothing to do with servitude or race, or nationality, or sex. Rather, all of these things only have to do with the status of a person, and that there should be no distinctions of status among Christians that they should all love and treat one another equally. He wrote Romans four or five years after he wrote this epistle to the Galatians. And when he wrote Romans chapter 9, he was only concerned about his kinsmen in Judea according to the flesh and not about the Edomites 
he had no care for the Edomites in Judea because he said, not all in Israel are of Israel. Meaning that many of those people in Israel, in Judea, were Edomites. Because he went on to compare Jacob and Esau, calling the Edomites vessels of destruction. So this has nothing to do with race and nationality. All of these things only had to do with the status of a person. This is also the meaning of Paul's later discourse on the parts of the body of Christ, which he had made to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he concludes that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. That's the context Paul is speaking in here. There is not one Judean or Greek. In other words, one is not better than the other. They're both Israelites from the seed of Abraham. The Israelite Judeans, Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, and the Israelite Greeks, those Greeks of the tribes of the Dorians and the other Greek tribes which descended from the ancient Israelites. Paul is speaking only in reference to the body of Christ, to the seed of Abraham. That distinction is a scriptural distinction which Paul maintains throughout this chapter. And the conclusion of the chapter, Galatians 3.29, actually reinforces that assertion. It says precisely the opposite of what the Judeo-Christian pastors claim that it says. And Paul says, but if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the to promise according to promise. I'm sorry. The King James Version has added the conjunction and to the last clause of this verse, which is not in any of the original manuscripts. In fact, the original manuscripts are extremely consistent. All of the oldest great uncles and papyri that attest this verse are extremely consistent in the Greek. But the Greek's a little difficult. Without adding any words or punctuation, and without changing any of the original word order, this verse is difficult to comprehend in English and would be translated, but if you of Christ, then of Abraham, offspring, you are heirs according to promise. The word for then, but if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham. The word for then is the Greek word ara. According to Goodell and Scott, ara was generally used to describe a thing which is next in order after another or something which explains what has preceded. Both of these uses are manifest where ARA appears 
in different types of conditional sentences. The Greek word ara often serves to introduce what is called the apodosis in a conditional sentence. That's the then part of an if-then sentence. The apodosis is the clause which answers to the protasis of the, of the conditional sentence. And the protasis is the if part. So you have protasis and apodosis. If it is raining, then I cannot go fishing. That's one example of a conditional sentence. And in some cases, the word ara can have an inferential force in those sentences. But, and this is important, there are several types of conditional sentences. Conditional sentences can either express factual implications or they can express hypothetical situations and their consequences, one or the other. And for a pretty decent explanation, you can go right to Wikipedia and the article on conditional sentences for definitions and examples. In order to determine the type of conditional sentence to which such a statement belongs, and this is important, the grammar of each of the clauses in the conditional sentence must be examined. We see conditional sentences using the same Greek words for if and then, I and ara, in Matthew ch chapter 12, verse 28, and written by Paul in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. And I'm sure there are others, but I only looked for two. In both of those instances, we see sentences constructed very much like this one, which are the type of conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. In both of those verses, Matthew 12.28 and Hebrews 12.8, if the protasis, which is the clause following the if, is true, then the apodosis, which is the clause following the then, must also be true. These are conditional sentences which, which express factual implications. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 28, we read, but if, the same two words, the same two Greek words we see beginning Galatians 3.29, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. And that word then is the same word then we see in this verse as well. So it's the same construction. If the kingdom of God in the person of Christ and his disciples was not manifest, then Christ was not casting out devils by the Spirit of God. 
In other words, if one clause is true, then the other clause must also be true. Christ did not say to the Pharisees in Matthew that the kingdom of God may come unto you, or will come unto you, or shall come unto you. He said, it is come unto you. So by the grammar of each independent clause, we see that both clauses in his statement must be true. This is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication, or as Liddell and Scott have it in their definition, something which explains what has preceded. The kingdom of God has come unto you, explains how Christ cast out devils by the Spirit of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, In verse 8, we read, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof ye are all partakers. But if, the same two words that begin Galatians 3.29, then, that same word, ara, then are ye bastards and not sons. So, we have another conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. If one is a bastard, then one is not a partaker in the chastisement of the children of God. As the word of God says to Israel that, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And again, if one clause is true, then the other clause must be true. If you be without chastisement, then you are a bastard. If you're a bastard, you must be without chastisement because God has only chastised the children of Israel. The other people just don't count. So this is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. The then part of Paul's statement is something which explains what has preceded which is the if part of Paul's statement. Paul did not say in Hebrews 12a that one may be a bastard or that one could be a bastard. So by the grammar of each clause, we once again see that both clauses must be true. This is because the verb in the apodosis this is important. The apodosis is the then clause. The verb is an indicative verb. The indicative mood is a mood which is used to express a definite statement. The verb is not subjunctive. A subjunctive mood verb is a verb which expresses contingency or uncertain fulfillment, which is something that would be, or something that could be, or may be, nor is it an optative verb, a mood which expresses a wish or a desire, which is a contingent possibility. So when we have 
indicative verbs and definite statements in the if and the then, then what we have is something which explains what has proceeded, according to Liddell and Scott. Something, a, a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. We do not have that second type of conditional sentence, which expresses a hypothetical situation and its consequences. That is not what's going on here in Galatians 3.29. If we had something that expressed a hypothetical situation and its consequences, we would have, but maybe if you are Christ's, then perhaps of the offspring of Abraham, you would be heirs according to promise. That's the way the Judeo-Christian denominations interpret this passage. But that's a lie. That's not what we have. We have one verb in the whole passage, and it is indicative. But if you are Christ's, the verb is not even there. The verb I mean often has to be supplied in Greek. And that's the case here. But where it says, then of the offspring of Abraham you are, the verb is there. And Paul's putting that verb there in the indicative mood tells us precisely that this is not a hypothetical situation, that this is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. Here in Galatians 3.29, where Paul wrote, if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. Once again, the verb in the clause, in the then side of the statement, is indicative expressing a definite statement, just like the verbs do in Matthew 12.28 and Hebrews 12.8. So this is also a type of conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. If you are Christ's, you are also Abraham's seed. Paul did not write, that if you believe in Jesus, you may be, or you would, or you could be, or you shall be Abraham's seed, in the manner in which the denominational sects claim. Both sides of this statement must be true. If you are Abraham's seed, according to what Paul explained in Galatians 3.16, and throughout the rest of this chapter, then you are Christ's. The commentators of the denominational sects isolate this one verse. And then they claim that it is a conditional sentence which expresses a hypothetical situation and its consequences. But that is a lie. Rather, this is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. Just as we have seen in Matthew 12.28, and Hebrews 12.8. Or else, all of Paul's previous statements in this chapter are no longer true, and Paul is a liar.
But Paul is not saying that someone can simply claim to be Christ and imagine himself to be of the offspring of Abraham. Rather, all through this chapter, Paul's words prove that someone cannot claim to be Christ and imagine himself to be of Abraham's offspring. Paul had previously explained that those of Christ are those of the faith of Abraham, which are those in whom Abraham had believed, that the seed which would come from his loins would become many nations, as Paul had also said, that seed is according to the promise, the promise in Genesis. Paul had also explained that those of Christ are those who were guarded and tutored under the law which can only refer to those same nations of Abraham's seed, which came from his loins, which later became many nations in the dispersions of the children of Israel. This verse may be read at the beginning, but if you are of the anointed, if you are of the anointed, you are of the offspring of Abraham and an heir according to the promise. But if you are not of the offspring of Abraham and an heir according to the promise, then you are not of Christ. Paul will reinforce all of this again in Galatians chapter 4, where he says that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. For the second clause, Galatians 3.29, I am nearly impelled to write, then of Abraham you must be the offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's because in the original Koine Greek manuscripts, there are no accents. In the oldest papyri, there are no accents. The difference between the present tense second person plural forms of the Greek verb aini which is to be, being that esta, with the final letter accented, indicates the indicative mood, which we have in the manuscripts here. And that esta, with the first letter accented, indicates the imperative mood. But the accents belong to the editors of the manuscripts and not to the original Koine Greek, as it is found in the Greek Ancheal manuscripts. So the word you are in the apodosis here can be indicative or it can be imperative. If you are Christ, you must be of the offspring of Abraham, or you're not of Christ, because if one clause is true, the other clause has to come true has to be true, I'm sorry. Now, the other moods, the subjunctive mood and the optative moods, have forms of this word which are entirely different words, and there can be no confusion about them. There's no doubt that the apodosis is a, an indicative statement here, and that therefore... This is a conditional clause where both conditions must be true because both sides, the protasis and the apodosis, are expressing factual 
implications because the word ara here, as Liddell and Scott have it, illustrates something which explains that which has preceded. As we have explained, the necessity imposed that one must be from the physical seed of Abraham's loins is already clear enough in Scripture in order for one to be a Christ. For example, in Matthew chapter 15, in verse 24, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And especially here in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.23, Galatians 4.5, Galatians 4.28. It is clear that one must be of the offspring of Abraham in order to be of Christ in the first place. Where Paul says here in this verse, heirs according to promise, the promise is in the Old Testament. As Paul is referring to the promises which God made to Abraham in Genesis. And the word for heirs is plural. So therefore, the heirs are not the singular individual seed referring to Jesus Christ as the denominational sects also so strongly insist. Paul confirms this once again in Hebrews chapter 6, an epistle written several years after this one. And he said, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. The confirmation was, of course, in Christ. Paul confirms this again at Hebrews 11.9, where he spoke of Abraham, writing that by faith he sojourned in a land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Were the heirs of plural, the seed of Genesis 3.16 must be the collective anointed, the children of Israel, because the heirs are plural and not singular. The promise is to be made to the collective plural. James, writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, also confirms that the heirs of the promise of God are a plural entity in the second chapter of his epistle. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? Peter confirms this as well in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered where the heirs are plural, the seed in Genesis, I'm sorry, I keep saying that, in Galatians 3.16 is a plural entity. And in truth, each of the seeds in Genesis 3.15 are also a plural collective entity. Paul confirms 
the same thing first in Romans 4.14, Romans 8.17, Titus 3.7. The heirs of the promises to Abraham are not the one individual, Jesus Christ, but a collective, plural, anointed people, which are the children of Israel. Therefore, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Wherein that he explains that one must be a child of God first, and then one is an heir with Christ. Christ having a twofold nature as God and man. The children of Israel are designated as the children of God in Deuteronomy chapter 14, as well as in other places in the Old Testament. And if one is not one of those Deuteronomy 14 children of Israel, one cannot be an heir to the covenant and the promises of Abraham. Ye are the children of Yahweh thy God. If Deuteronomy 14.1 and a few places pertaining only to Israel in the prophets are the only places in, in the Old Testament where Yahweh has claimed any children, then no one else but the children of Israel can make such a claim for themselves. The commentators of the denominational sects seek to commit history's greatest crime, to steal the inheritance of God from the true children of Israel and give it over to devils. Covenant theology is the only legitimate theology, and it is the core of what we call Christian identity. It is the only theology which causes the children of Israel to heed the word of God, where it says in Isaiah, to look unto, your, unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. And it is the Elijah ministry which Christ had said would have to come before the end. As described in Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Look unto Abraham, your father, or he will come and smite the earth with a curse. This concludes our presentation of Galatians chapter 3. Tomorrow night, the protocols of Satan. I think that's what I will turn this upcoming and probably lengthy series on the protocols of the learned elders of, wow, I hate to say Zeon in connection with Jews. I'll call it the protocols of Satan, even if I have to repeat the phrase once in a while. Sunday afternoon. Sven Longshanks. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.